0: How do we make people working in and harmed by the carbon economy part of the clean energy future? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. I'm Devin Strolovich. The number of Americans working in the solar industry is double the full and part-time number working in coal. But that doesn't mean many coal workers aren't proud of what they've contributed to the global economy.
1: When I say, you know, we need to build an inclusive green economy, I think about those workers and I think about communities who are bearing the brunt of pollution from oil refineries and other sorts of coal mines.
0: Michelle Romero is national director of Green For All, an environmental justice organization founded by the activist and CNN commentator Van Jones. She launched the Moms Mobilize campaign to fight the Trump administration's budget and dismantlement of environmental protections. Joining her and Greg at the Commonwealth Club was author and war correspondent William Volman, winner of the 2005 National Book Award for the novel Europe Central. His latest books are Carbon Ideologies, extensive works on the math and the people that drive the global energy system. Here's our conversation about captives of the carbon economy.
2: William Volman, uh, you write a lot in your first book about nuclear power. So take us to Fukushima. You went into the dead zones over seven years after that nuclear disaster in Fukushima. So take us to that, what it's like to go into the site of a nuclear disaster.
3: Well, at the very beginning, it just looked vaguely eerie. You would see... um, potted plants that had just begun to wilt maybe somebody's umbrella in the doorstep that had fallen down and then as the years went by the vines grew up the uh, radioactive wild boar started breaking into buildings um, the windows broke um, and it just got creepier and nastier
2: were you concerned about you know radioactive exposure going in there. You had some devices to measure the exposure. Are you should Michelle be concerned about sitting next to you?
3: Oh, I don't have a glowing personality. I think you're safe, Michelle. (laughs) Um, No, I've reproduced, so I didn't really care much. Um, I had a dosimeter and then a so-called pancake frisker. So the dosimeter can measure your accrued dose and the pancake frisker can tell you, oh, Right where I am right now, this is dangerous, but if I go three steps away from that drain pipe, I'm quite safe. And if only we had things like that that could measure carbon dioxide and methane and all these other greenhouse gases, uh, simply, I think we would be a lot better off. Michelle
2: Romero, where are you on nuclear power? Because nuclear power uh, does not send kids to the hospital with asthma. It is carbon free. Uh, if you you know, it, it, there's no emissions. There's the whole waste issue. But wouldn't nuclear power be a good thing for the people that you care about that are downstream from refineries and 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 coal burning factories?
1: Absolutely not. <laughs> yep. Absolutely not. So uh, at Green for All, it's really about building a green economy that's about more than just climate change, more than just carbon pollution, right? It's about building stronger, more resilient communities that are sustainable and that have good access to health care, to healthy foods, to um, get around from place to place, right? So when we talk about clean transportation, even, we're looking at how do we fight poverty and pollution, mobility access, health access, environmental justice, all of these things at the same time.
2: Okay, and we'll get to some of those things. So, so William, on, on nuclear power, did, did going to Fukushima you know, change your mind about nuclear? Some people, Jim Hansen, NASA scientist, say nuclear is a solution for a climate. We need more of it. What do you think after being in Fukushima?
3: I think all four of the major fuels are about the same um, nuclear, coal, oil, and natural gas, they're all very, very dangerous. And um, the only solution is to reduce demand, reduce demand for everything. Um, We can't trust to one or the other of these fuels.
2: But you write, you go to Bangladesh where you talk to people who say, uh, look, they want the standard of living that everyone listening to this enjoys, and it's wrong to deny them that. So how can you reduce demand for people that don't consume very much already?
3: Well... That's a good point. And the Bangladeshis um, probably emit something like 42 times less from fuel combustion than we do. Um, So one simple solution would be um, more birth control for Americans.
2: Population's a thing that a lot of environments don't don't like to talk about. Michelle Romero, does the green economy involve sacrifice? William Williams said reducing demand, you know, living with less. Is that the path?
1: Well, I'll tell you, there are plenty of communities living with less already, um, and if we did more to invest in, in underserved communities, we would actually help bridge the eco-divide. I was just out in the Central Valley of California, which is the breadbasket for a lot of the nation, right? A lot of our mm-hmm. uh, foods and produce come from the Central Valley, and I talked to residents who are on poverty wages. this one gentleman in particular that comes to mind, um, Emilio, he's in his 60s. He's got two grandkids that he and his wife are raising on poverty wages. And it's triple digit weather out there every summer. And so once July came, Mm -hmm. his energy bill skyrocketed to over $1,000 a month. It's 66% above their income. And he couldn't afford to pay it, so their energy was, their power was shut off for weeks. They had to send the kids down to some other family to basically couch surf while he and his wife slept in the dirt overnight to try and keep cool, like you would see, you know, an animal or your pets do at home, right? Um, And so, you know, he's been able to get into a low-income weatherization program here in California that's funded by our cap-and-trade dollars. And so they were able to invest thousands in in upgrading his AC, which, you know, you can run all day. And if it's an old unit, it still isn't making your house very cool, and it's really racking up your your energy bill. Um, So replace the AC, weatherize the home, you know. The um, insulation stripping, stripping, all of that kind of stuff. And so they've been able to get the power back on. And so when I think of, you know, do we need to sacrifice? I think of all the communities who are already sacrificing a lot. And that if we actually think about how we invest our climate dollars in these areas that maybe need to crank the AC, right? Like not having AC when it's 120 degrees outside is not an option. It's not safe. Um, So how do we actually make sure then that they can get off the grid, too?
2: But the idea of living with less or or redistribution, that there's some people ought to sort of tighten their belts a little bit as they've done in past wars, right? Should that happen among the elites who are comfortable to kind of buy a smaller car, eat less meat, somehow change their lifestyle voluntarily for the comfortable?
1: All of these things are important, right? It takes all of us doing our part, and literally there is something that every single person can do to reduce our consumption. I think, though, that the overemphasis on the on the consumer side, right, that this is a problem we didn't necessarily create, and now we're being asked to solve it. I mean, I see all of these plastic straw campaigns now where everybody's got to now buy the new thing that they're selling, right, (laughs) which is not the plastic straw, but the the metal straws, and it's so much, um, so much of the onus is being put on the consumer, which, yes, we can all do our part, but how about we all, like, focus on some of these big corporate polluters who've caused a lot of the problem and profited off of it, and stop letting them pollute for free. Actually put a price on pollution and invest in the solutions that are going to accelerate the transition to an economy and to a world that we need.
2: William Volman, you talked to some CEOs of energy suppliers, which Michelle uh, would call polluters, including uh, Archie Dunham, a retired CEO of Conoco a Big Oil Company. And you write that uh, you actually like some of these guys who have uh, been oil you know, energy suppliers. Tell us about that.
3: Yeah, I personally liked and admired him. And also uh, Sam Hughes, who was a uh, a vice president of the Bank of Oklahoma for energy loans. And one of the things that Sam said was, you know, Bill, we're all ideologues. And one thing I've learned in my life is that if you challenge somebody's ideology, he's either going to hate you or walk away from you. And I'm thinking, all right. We don't need to hate and walk away from each other because that's not going to work. Um, my thinking is all the, the people involved in resource extraction, particularly the lower level people like the coal miners of West Virginia who feel um, really despised and ignored, should be hearing from us, you know what, we're grateful to you for letting us turn on our lights and air conditioners for all of these decades. And we want to compensate you for what you've done, and we want to retrain you in the solar industry or something like that. West Virginia has, I think, the third greatest number of trees. And the current um, governor there, Jim Justice, who his name is kind of an oxymoron, wants to cut down a bunch of trees, put in furniture factories. If they're going to cut down some trees, Why not um, made-in-America solar collectors that uh, West Virginians can sell and make some money from and just feel that we care about them? People like these um, oil executives, they honestly believe that they have worked hard all their lives to give us something that benefits us. And I certainly, when I was in Japan writing against nuclear power, Turned on my nuclear-powered air conditioner and ate my nuclear-cooked pizza, so I don't want to be a hypocrite. We have to figure out some way to say, "Let's make you part of the future."
1: Yeah, and I just want to say, you know, to the point about the coal miners, one of the things that I'm really proud of that our organization did this past year was to actually stand up for the health benefits of retired coal miners who were about you. to lose their their benefits last year. This is after Trump was elected, and uh, 24,000 coal miners were about to lose their health care benefits in the United States. And the Democrats didn't really want to touch it because they were Trump voters. Right. And the Republicans didn't really want to touch it because they didn't want to get involved in, in business. Right. It was the company mm-hmm. who had employed them for all of these years who was reneging on their promise to them. Um, and that's something that I'm proud of, You know, standing up and doing the right thing, that we actually have a lot more in common with communities who are just trying to put food on the table, who are just trying to keep the lights on for us, Right. Um, and who go down... Hundreds of feet into the dirt, right, to dig up what essentially turns on our light bulbs and and to do that for so many decades. And so it's absolutely when I say, you know, we need to build an inclusive green economy, I think about those workers and I think about um, communities who are bearing the brunt of pollution from oil refineries and other sorts of coal mines. 68% of African Americans in the United States live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant.
3: Good for you, Michelle. You know, and if I could add something to that, the impression that I came away with in Appalachia was that those people think that we have no use for them. And so they don't like us either. And I really think we can turn that around and work together.
2: William when you say that they're they're mad that people are angry at them. They really feel like and this is, you know, the under a lot of what Trump tapped into. They feel that that coal is a heritage fuel. They're really proud of it and they want to continue it.
3: That's right. And, um, you know, you folks might have noticed that um, once you start a war, if you want to continue that war, all you need to do is get some soldiers on your side killed and then suddenly we have to live up to their sacrifice. That's sort of how it works in a place like Appalachia. People will say, well, you know, my, my grandfather was killed in a coal mine, and, you know, how dare you say that their
0: sacrifice was in vain. It's really quite interesting. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about captives of the carbon economy. Coming up, Greg Dalton asks about helping coal workers and other vulnerable communities take advantage of clean energy solutions.
1: For them, it's not actually about the pollution issue. It's about the mobility access. It's about the health access. It's about literally being able to do any of their business.
0: That's up next, when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about captives of an economy run on carbon, with Michelle Romero, National Director of Green for All, and William Volman, author of Carbon Ideologies. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. Tell us, William Volman about some of the dead coal mining
2: towns. You think that the Fukushima has some parallels to some dead coal mining towns because you know, coal has contracted somewhat in the United States.
3: It certainly has. Yeah, I remember the town of Jaeger. Um, And the downtown was just crawling with kudzu vines. There was hardly anybody around Um, And I met a guy who told me oh yeah back in the 60s You should have seen how it was my mother had a restaurant, but now no one comes Um, and uh, So often I heard from the sons and daughters of coal miners or from the old retired guys Oh, you should have seen how great the coal company store was It was so much better than Walmart you know I got my wife's prom dress there but the really nasty thing about the industry I would say is that um, it has continued to automate and so um, it's more and more productive with fewer and fewer workers and um, in addition West Virginia is very proud of its low corporate taxes so that means that the industry is really not giving back to the community. Um, So these towns just get more and more abandoned. The most typical thing you might see in one of these towns is uh, a dialysis center because, you know, all you can find to buy in the store is um, junk food. A lot of the water in these southern counties is acidified because um, coal is often chemically bonded with iron. And the iron turns into fool's gold, which then becomes sulfuric acid. So uh, people drinking tap water will get ulcers. It'll rot their teeth. Um, It also dissolves heavy metals so that in the rivers, um, the gills of the fish start hemorrhaging Um, in the town of North Fork. The librarian said that uh, there's been no water there for five years. So she has to um, get in a taxi or wherever and go up to the store just to bring back her bottles of drinking water. Um, so it's it's quite a nightmare.
2: And William, I'm not sure uh, you're reporting, you know, how much of it was before and after the 2016 election. But did that change? You know, uh, obviously what you're talking about, Trump tapped into. Uh, but, you know, are you able to, to see before and after the election, the impacts of either the hope of Trump or perhaps some skepticism about whether he's really bringing back coal as he promised?
3: Well, um, Appalachians talked a lot about the so-called war on coal. Um, You know, when Obama was in power, you know, oh, it was that wicked socialist Obama. And then you just read back, and when Clinton was in power, oh, it was all the fault of Clinton. You know, it just goes back and back and back. Um, And they really thought they were losing the war on coal. So now they don't have to think so anymore. In fact, I think Pruitt went to some place in Kentucky and said, the war on coal is over. So everyone was happy. I mean, it's a, rhetoric, right? Right. it's a lot of rhetoric,
1: right? Like I said, when we went to actually, you know, when when Trump had his first opportunity to do something for coal miners, he wasn't out there saying, we're going to make sure that you're taken care of and that these companies don't renege on their promise to, to take care of you, right, into retirement. There was none of that. So I think campaign promises are one thing. We've all heard, you know, that. But... I think two things i want to say you know and one is just about this narrative and how the conversation is being shaped nationally um and i want to make sure we don't fall into the same uh pitfall here which is that in the environmental movement or environmentalists don't like coal miners don't you know have this problem with the people who are working in the industry um and vice versa right that folks who are working in these coal mines who come out all of them with black lung disease would prefer that life to one where they could put food on the table, have, you know, a quality job that is not going to deteriorate their health. Um, And so I just think that there are actually a lot more in common that we have, whether it's the urban cores, the rural communities, the coasts, you know, uh, the middle of the country, than we have different. And I think that, you know, Trump's capitalized on folks' economic fears, right? The economic insecurity that's plaguing the country, And that's certainly true, right? We're seeing the wealth gap widen. Um, But one thing that you mentioned, uh, Will, it was the artificial intelligence component and the technology component, that the job loss isn't going to come from the green economy. We know there's job growth there, right? However, the transition may occur, but there's job growth there, so it's a net positive. Um, But artificial intelligence and the technology Sector so automation is going to be a risk factor for everybody and so we need to really you know figure out with social safety nets how we're going to prepare society um, even thinking about our education system what do you do when we're no longer automated. You know, human beings who've become automated to play certain functions in our economy and Can be freed up a little bit more to think creatively about where we go as a society
2: I interviewed a coal activist whose son was working in the mines and he was training to become an EMT He was planning his his path out by acquiring new skills um, Are there examples of you know anecdotes or programs where you know, what's a 40 year old coal miner supposed to do? What's the path for them? They can't just suddenly start making solar panels particularly if there's no solar panel factory in their and their or town, they don't want to move. What, Michelle Romero, what are the paths to go from the brown to the green economy for individuals? We know macro states and companies, but what's the individual path?
1: Yeah, yeah, there are some examples. So, Green for All actually has a great toolkit on its website if you want to check it out, greenforall.org. Um, we put out a toolkit that sort of shares some case studies for how communities in different parts of the country, from Washington to uh, North Carolina, et cetera, have dealt with some of these closures of plants and how they've addressed the issues with workers. And so for some, retraining is a viable option. And for others nearing retirement, it may be providing a uh, benefit package that'll help you usher them into retirement without having to, you know, think about actually starting a whole new career over, mm-hmm. which is probably not very realistic, right? Um, some people would say universal basic income is an idea that comes from the left um, and don't necessarily have folks like coal miners in mind when you think about universal basic income. I think actually that we're going through such a big shift in our economy that we need to really think about the social safety nets and then also um, the other uh, opportunities for changing out some of those businesses in those communities. Like you said, we don't want uh, abandoned towns, right? We don't want to be driving through and people can remember the glory days. were behind them We want the glory days to be in front of people uh, for all communities
2: Yeah, if you're just joining us We're talking about the clean energy economy and the fossil fuel economy at climate one with Michelle Romero National director for green for all and William Volman author of the carbon ideologies. I'm Greg Dalton uh, Michelle Romero, uh, let's talk about the conversation. Climate is very polarized. It's, it's kind of uh, uh, thought to be not brought up in polite conversation, kind of sex, politics, climate change. How do you make uh, talk about climate in, in a way that's relevant to, to the communities you engage with? I imagine you don't talk about polar bears and glaciers.
1: No polar bears, no glaciers, <laughs> no, no trees. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, to be honest with you, a couple of years ago, I didn't consider myself an environmentalist at all. I came to Green For All because I followed uh, the leadership of our CEO, Vien Trong, who I had known from prior work, uh, to be a racial and economic justice advocate. And I said, you know, I don't quite get all of this that you're, that you're doing, but if you're working on it, it must be good. And four weeks into my stint at Green For All, she sent me to Flint, Michigan, the city that was you know, plagued by lead-poisoned water um, and allowed this to go on for over a year, right, without anyone even being notified that they were drinking poison water. Um, and it just became so real. So I think that, you know, the way that we talk to communities about this isn't at all about climate change, right? And so, um... Climate
2: change is everywhere and nowhere. It's so abstract.
1: It's so abstract It feels like this thing that's far off into the future, you know, isn't it something someone else can worry about? What do I even do? What can I do to fight climate change today? Right? I'm just my my individual person trying to make ends meet Like Emilio trying to pay his thousand dollar energy bill and get the power turned on He's not thinking about how to save the planet. He's thinking about how to save his family and so you talk to them where they're at, right? And you help them to understand how there are alternative options that can actually help lower their bill in some cases, right? If we're talking about solar and things like that, how to get into programs that'll help them bridge the gap between where, what resources they have and what resources they need to enter that economy. Um, And in other situations, it's not talking about even the pollution. So, uh, again, going back to this rural community where I just came from, there's a farm worker town of about 7,000 people, Huron, California. And there is an amazing uh, green reiteros program. Reiteros is a Spanish word for like a ride share program, right, or someone who would give you a ride. And they're creating this clean shared mobility program program that essentially is helping people in these rural farm towns be able to get to a hospital in an hour, not four hours, because the public bus systems currently take four hours one way to get to the children's hospital, which is the hospital that serves any of the kids that have asthma. Um, and so when you think about that, that's eight hours in your day, what hour do you schedule the appointment? And they don't run at night. So then you become stranded if you miss your last bus back. And so they've created this um, rideshare program where people are able to give rides and they're converting it to go green, getting into these incentives where they can now have electric vehicles to do this, where they can come borrow an electric vehicle if someone has a driver's license and help on a route. So whether you have a car or not, or whether you have a car that's an old clunker and are going to be able to now get a cleaner vehicle to do this, for them, it's not actually about the pollution issue, although it'll fight pollution too. It's about the mobility access. It's about the health access. It's about literally being able to do any of their business. You know, go to court, visit people uh, in jail you know, schedule their appointments. Any business that they have is in the downtown area, right? It's in the metropolitan area, and so um, it's talking about how these solutions are going to meet the needs that they truly have.
2: William Vell, when you talk to people in coal country, fracking, uh, what do they think about climate change? Do some of them feel guilty for contributing to it? Do some people just deny it, say it's a hoax? What What was the range of views you found?
3: Most of the people in coal country don't believe in it. The people in Bangladesh have never heard of it. The guest workers in the Emirates don't really understand it. I went up uh, near the Oregon border to Redding, California to cover the, the big car fire. And um, the smoke was really, really thick. It actually bothered me more than a lot of the locals. And uh, there was only one person uh, I could find, including firefighters, who is willing to say there is absolutely climate change. So. I know I haven't done my work well enough. And um, I really admire you, Michelle. And there's going to be more and more need for people like you as we all become more impoverished. I think things are going to rapidly get worse. And maybe in 10 years, we might find wildfires from Mexico to Canada on the West Coast every couple of years. We just have a nightmare to look forward to. And we're not making any real progress, unfortunately.
2: William Volman, The New York Times critique of your book was that you are a little dark, dark and gloomy. Um, Do my best. (laughs) (laughs) um, But there is a sense. uh, It seems like every year there's a bit of a sense that, oh, this is a breakthrough moment that, you know, there's Hurricane Katrina first and then Sandy and then Harvey. People, Michelle Romero, who who talk about uh, this feel like, oh, this is the breakthrough year. And we're in one of those again in 2018 because of the soaring heat, because of the fires. It's turning. People are getting through. Is this the breakthrough year?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I think that people are realizing they need to get up and and take part in the action and that the people who make the decisions um, can really make things better or they can make things worse. And so I I would hope to see more engagement this year with it being the election and all. Um, But, you know, in terms of people all of a sudden getting climate change is real, I think they know the weather is doing something really weird. You know, I think they know the weather is doing something really weird. I think, though, that climate change is really exacerbating a lot of the problems that we've already seen. And Mm so, um, you know, for folks in Florida, certainly not Puerto Rico is a different situation. But um, for folks in Florida who experienced Hurricane Maria, it's like us experiencing an earthquake here in California. There's big ones and, you know, it does a lot more damage. But the general idea of being used to earthquakes, we're sort of used to that. It's not um, something completely new. And so there are hurricanes that happen every year. And yes, the severity and the frequency is getting um, increased. But to say that they're seeing dramatic changes, I don't know. I don't know if the weather is going to be enough
2: because the weather is always changing. My you know, uh, the people in my family who do not who don't think it's happening say, well, the weather is always changing. So
1: and this is the part where, you know, instead of having a fear based message, using a solutions-based message you know are we afraid because it's going to be however many more degrees you know the the science but however many more degrees hotter or colder in these um, summers and winters right are we going to be fearful of all of the bad things that are going to happen and will that motivate people or are we going to be inspired by the solutions that can actually help us now
2: William Volman, when you say it's going to get a lot worse it's going to be painful and there's going to be poverty created Where are you in that moment when you say that? What do you do with that?
3: Well, in the 70s, my dad thought that the Sierra Club was a very, very subversive organization. And then Earth First came along, and suddenly the Sierra Club didn't look so bad. So maybe if uh, I can frighten a few people, Michelle Solutions will look even better, but... You know, what I think about is the fact that the residence of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere is anywhere from two to 8,000 years. So if we were to stop all of our emissions today, um, the oceans would keep rising, the planet would keep warming at best until something like 2,500 A.D., unless we can figure out some way to pull carbon out of the atmosphere, With technology that doesn't exist Um, the comparison I like to make is uh, is with say a, um, a young couple who has bought a nice house and they get behind on their mortgage you know our our planet Earth we're getting more and more behind on the mortgage the interests and penalties are kicking in so pretty soon you know there will be the penalties of biology as more diseases come and the plants die. But that's nothing compared to the penalties of physics. So all I can do is uh, is point and whine and complain. That's my service. And uh, so it's really not as nice as what Michelle is doing.
2: Michelle, yeah. is that the, you know, yeah. kind of each each person for their own or is there what's the other interdependence or more community based response to that? Yeah,
1: I mean, I have a daughter, so saying I gave up isn't exactly something I'd like to tell her one day. Um, And that's, you know, part of the reason why we launched a moms mobilize campaign last year is that everybody has a stake in this fight. And we were able to show by organizing moms around the country who are raising their kids in some of the most polluted parts of the, of the country um, that we could actually take on Trump when he was trying to roll back funding for the EPA Mm -hmm. and win something that, no one in the environmental community thought was possible they thought that if Trump wants these budget cuts that were going to be over a third right of the funding deeper than any other federal agency that this was going to be a fight about how to lessen the bleeding and how to have the least amount of rollback and we were actually able to unite people and show that you know regardless of whether you're from a red state or a blue state that Moms care about their kids and there dads were, do, too. Right.
2: But then lots of Republican legislators who went to bat for EPA and other energy program funding. Right. There are A lot of yeah. Republicans came forward as, in Congress as part of that.
1: And in part because we didn't frame this as a is it our issue or your issue? It's all of our issue. Right. And that this is something that if you care about your kids and your community, no matter where you're from, This is something that's going to touch you. This is something that's going to affect you. And so it's, again, talking about, you know, what we have in common and our shared humanity than about, you know, me or them or us or that, you know, all of that. So I say, you know, figure out what you can do in your community work with a local environmental justice group or a social justice organization that might be working on, you know, clean transportation or energy or closing down a power plant, working on just transition issues for what might happen with some of the workers. You know, whatever speaks to you, start there. Because when you think about how big the problem is, it can be easy to say, what's the point, point?" and give up. And I think that's the most common way we give up any of
0: our power. You're listening to a conversation about transitioning to a greener economy. This is Climate One. Coming up, Greg Dalton asks how to spread the clean energy message more effectively in communities still captive to carbon. In West Virginia, it needs to be through the churches. And in Bangladesh,
3: it needs to be with the local activists and elders. I just think it has to be told differently in each place for people to really feel that it is an issue affecting them.
0: That's up next, when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about captives of the carbon economy with Michelle Romero, National Director for Green For All, and William Vollman, author of Carbon Ideologies. Here again is your host, Greg Dalton. William Vollman, what is a carbon ideologue? Well, the coal companies
3: are evil, or God put coal in the ground for us to use. Both of those are examples of ideology. We can't really argue with those in a rational way and yet um, those are motivations for going forward in whatever action we take Um, so you know as as Sam Hughes said to me we're all ideologues Um, and as this issue becomes more and more important to us we're going to uh, encounter more and more extremists on both sides that's why we have to say, all right, this is my ideology and this is yours, but let's try and uh, meet in the middle. Um, otherwise, if we just get more and more balkanized, um, we're going to have even less hope of addressing this very, very pressing problem.
2: Michelle Romero, how do you uh, ensure that you don't in just a bubble with all your eco friends what do you do to try to check yourself you know whether it's not participate in certain phone calls or what do you do to try to make sure you're not in an echo chamber with people who just think like you
1: to be honest um environmental spaces are not my favorite places to be (laughs) (laughs) um yeah you know and i think just back to myself even two years ago that um, i'm personally am not compelled by some of the same talking points that our own movement put out there, and so um, just remembering that, remembering what actually motivates me, talking to my own friends and family, so whether they're my family in Spokane, Washington, or you know my dad who works for the garbage company, and, and talking to them about some of these things and seeing how it lands with them, because they're not activists, they're not, I mean, I'm the like lefty one in our, <laughs> in our family, right? And so um, seeing how it resonates, and does it actually move real people? Does it make sense, or are we just talking jargon and policy speak.
2: And why are environmental circles not your favorite places to be?
1: I think cuz we we do all speak the same language, right? And so it's it's nothing new. Um and I feel like righteousness? It's not that. No, I think that the work that environmental groups are doing is really important. I think that a part of the work that's necessary is to build a broader tent and that using the same messages that we've used for decades that speak to a segment of the community, we've probably saturated at this point, right? And so we really need to get creative about how we reach other segments of the population and motivate them to join this movement, because it's not just in a, like the environmental movement needs to be a human movement, right? This is something that affects us all. And so how are we engaging moms? How are we engaging faith communities? How are we engaging, you know, Black and Latino communities as well, who have higher rates of like all of the bad stuff right Um, and not the good stuff and so how do we speak to communities who have a vested interest who are naturally inclined to support but reach them with messages that actually speak to the things that they care about
2: but a lot of environmental campaigns start with attacks and villainization of often of suppliers uh, i'm not sure if green for all does that but a lot of the way to mobilize someone is, is is have a villain a black hat you know this is a bad person you know this don blankenship at you know coal company whatever write a check we'll take down these bad guys what do you think about those tactics michelle romero
1: yeah, yeah. well you know i think that accountability is really important um i think that you know we're not anti-corporation by any means i think there's some great companies that are doing great work ecos is one of them they're a global green products company and they're carbon neutral, water neutral, and zero waste in all of their manufacturing. They provide jobs here in the United States and in Greece. (laughs) Um, You know, and so there's examples of a profitable business that can also do the right thing. I think that, you know, accountability is really important. In this case, you know, when I talk about carbon pricing, for example, some of these companies have been profiting off of the pollution that they're pumping into low income communities and communities of color point blank, like period, right? There's a racial and economic layer to this where they're able to get away with it in some communities and not others. And I think that it's only fair, so I actually don't think about it as villainizing anyone, but saying, look, you need to pay your fair share here. That the cost of pollution has been subsidized, this Is the biggest subsidy we've ever given to these companies, is the subsidy that we're paying in our healthcare in our increased grocery bills even, right, with drought's effect on agriculture, in the, our actual shortened lifespans, in depressed property values when these companies come in, um, and in so many ways when you can't even give your kid clean drinking water. And so I think to say, you know what? You actually ought to pay for the, for the damage here. You actually ought to pay to reinvest in the communities that have been the side effect of your profit.
2: We're talking about uh, the carbon economy and the green economy with Michelle Romero, National Director for Green for All, and William Volman, author of The Carbon Ideology*. We're going to invite you to join the conversation. Our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One.
0: I this question is for Michelle. Uh, you've made a couple of comments on universal basic income being a, a potential solution for our transitioning economy. So my question around that is, how feasible do you think that is to implement politically, and how would we pay for it?
1: How feasible politically? I mean, I think that what we need to do to prepare society for an economy that goes more and more toward automation, we're not even close to. And I think the politics show that because um, we really need to beef up our social safety net. And right now that's become a racialized issue and a very hot political issue. Um, Republicans don't generally fund social safety net, it's not something that they like to do, fund social safety net programs. So what happens then in a situation where everyone needs a social safety net, right? Because there just aren't gonna be enough jobs for the number of people. Um, No, I don't think that we're there politically, so I don't know that it's even worth entertaining the how do we pay for it question, but um, We need to find a way to get there, you know, and it's everything. It's about how we're even training our kids that in schools, it's drill and kill. It's multiple choice. It's uh, remembering facts and regurgitating them. And that works for a society where, you know, after Ford invented the assembly line, we've become sort of automated in a way um, human beings. What happens then when the machines actually take over the automation role and we get to free up our own creativity and and think about how we solve bigger, more complex problems? Are we even prepared for that? Are we educating our society to even think about those kinds of issues?
2: Let's go to our next question, Climate One. So we've talked a lot about messaging today, and I'm just kind of wondering how you can improve the messaging towards the issues that are important. So, Michelle, you mentioned the the viral idea of the straw, right? So like how can you maybe take mm-hmm. advantage of a virality for some of the things that you've talked about today so that the focus shifts towards things that I think in all of our views are more important?
1: Well we're a nonprofit and so funding these great ideas to get them to, you know, more people I think is important. Um this just speaks to like the layers of, you know, uh role that money plays and and the systems and structures in place but um, truthfully so the reason that some of these ad campaigns or communications campaigns or messaging work um, with maybe not the messages that are going to move new people or um, the masses even sometimes have to do with who you have access to what resources you have who's giving money to there and um so when you ask the question how do we actually help some of these other messages reach a broader swath of those audiences and bring them in we need to fund it we need to fund those solutions um so that we can actually do this work and and get out to more people
2: but the reality is that you know uh when stock markets crash for example donations to organizations like green for all and the commonwealth club go down you know after the great recession philanthropy was really hit you know And a lot of organizations so we're we're kind of locked in this system that's really hard to see our way out of it William Volman 1967 there was a biology textbook you write about a Brown professor uh, talked about present warming of the earth That was the first time I'd seen that that you know a college course in 1967 yeah I was
3: I was rather surprised because In uh, my Encyclopedia Britannica, which is from about 1976-77, there's an article on weather and an article about climate, and they're at cross-purposes as to whether the Earth is warming or not. Um, I think that uh, by the end of the 1970s, it was fairly well established. Um, I read a book by some scientists at Oak Ridge who said, we know that uh, the Earth is going to warm and um, there is more and more CO2 in the atmosphere. But fortunately, uh, no one's going to have to worry about that until the 21st century. <laughs> um, it's, it's really quite discouraging to see how we just keep kicking the can down the road.
2: And that was the premise of the recent New York Times Magazine article, which was you know, losing Earth was that, that decade by the late 70s people knew and it was bipartisan and the information was there
3: but if I could add one thing to what you and Michelle were saying if we wanted to get the message out I think it has to be a different message in each place Um, in West Virginia it needs to be through the churches if we got the various pastors on board with doing something whether or not we called it climate change they would listen and in Bangladesh it needs to be with the local activists and elders. I just think it has to be uh, told differently in each place for people to really feel that it is an issue affecting them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Trusted messengers is really key. So it's not just a uh, you know white organization or a corporation you know putting a person of color in their ad and and thinking that that's going to work. It's the trusted messengers who's actually speaking to these communities who actually understands these issues, because that's ultimately the, me, you know, the message comes from the real experience.
2: William Volman, you write about natural gas, which sometimes referred to as a bridge fuel, less bad than, than the coal it replaces. You know, is that, you know, a lot of people would say fracking can be done cleanly, responsibly. Natural gas burns cleaner than, than coal. Uh, what's your take on natural gas?
3: Well, natural gas has a higher inherent energy value than coal and it does burn more cleanly however the problem is that um, a lot of natural gas leaks from the pipelines Um, there was a guy I was talking to who was he did remediation in Colorado and he said look Bill I can't go through a single day without making a mistake neither can anyone else the main component in natural gas is methane methane burned Uh, is very clean unburned. It's something like 86 times worse than carbon dioxide in the first 20 years. Gradually, it turns into carbon dioxide, and then it's just moderately worse. So um, unburned methane is a real nightmare.
2: And America's uh, supplying a lot more oil Than it used to I think it's you know by some measure surpassed Saudi Arabia a lot of that happened under Barack Obama So William Volman your take on on whether that's a good thing because it's produced here where there's stronger environmental regulations If it's not here, it's gonna be in Nigeria some other country where the environmental regulations are looser your take on America's oil boom
3: Well, I guess I would say something that relates generally to that Um, What I heard From a couple of these oil executives and also from someone in the West Virginia Coal Association is look suppose we make these unilateral improvements to our emissions and other countries don't do that how badly is that going to affect our economy in a way that's like a a more fundamental version of the question you were asking and the answer is that I don't know but I'm quite cynical that people producing any particular fuel in our country um, are going to do it more carefully. Um, When I was in Weld County, which is supposed to be the most fracked county in the U.S., I could smell all kinds of volatile organic compounds coming out of the various frack pads. Um, I met a guy who, with his family, was constantly sick. Uh, every time the kids would go outside they would get a bloody nose and uh, the company of course was not helpful so he decided he would maybe uh, bake a bunch of cookies in the house to cover up the smell and sell it
2: so this is someone who sold the mineral rights on their property and then had remorse for for leasing the the, some of their land to fracking
3: most people in uh, at least in Greeley Colorado Uh, And most people in West Virginia, too, do not own the mineral rights Um,
2: under their land.
3: Right. So they never thought about it. You know, there was a guy in uh, BIM, West Virginia, who uh, dug a well. And uh, he actually went through three different coal mines on the way down. Uh, His coffee tasted really, really bitter. And they said, well, it's the water coming up out of your coal mine. And it's all ruined. Then one day they dug another coal mine under his house. There was a big boom, and that was the end of his water, and he had no recourse.
2: Did you talk to people who had sort of seller's remorse for uh, selling? You know, some, A lot of people have cashed in big time on leases, natural gas. Did you talk to any people who had seller's remorse?
3: No, I just talked with a lot of people who had no idea that they did not own the mineral rights, and so it never occurred to them that it would be a problem until it was too late.
2: We have to get close to the end here. Michelle Romero, final words on the path forward. Uh, You know, it's dark days. All these fires, all these problems. What gets you up in the morning? Gets you motivated and excited?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we've turned the lights on for decades the way that we have. There's no use in talking about how bad that was, and maybe we did or didn't know back then how bad it would be. But there's a better way now, and so you know, fighting for a future that's truly sustainable and green for everyone um, and really getting our way to renewable energy
2: and William Volman, your idea for the path forward. You've painted this very dark picture. You think the odds are long for us. Your idea for the path forward.
3: Well, um, there should be a Manhattan project for carbon capture. Maybe there is some plant based technology to use the sun's energy to capture carbon because we have to find uh, some way to save ourselves. And in the meantime, I think that um, what Michelle is doing is very, very important. And um, what I would like to do um, is to keep uh, trying to scare people into thinking that it's really time to wake up and uh, put aside our differences.
0: Greg Dalton has been talking about captives of the carbon economy with Michelle Romero national director of the environmental justice organization Green For All, and William Vollman, author of the new books Carbon Ideologies. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, economy, and the environment.
2: Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea, Devin Strolovich, and Claire Schoen edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.